no idea. Um, I don't know. Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> this is the way it is. This is the way the world's run. I really don't think I, I have any philosophy to answer that, actually. That's one of the mysteries of the world. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just the ebb and flow of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, I guess they're unlucky. Bad things happen just out of uh, coincidence and... Uh, Part of life. It's a life process. Just uh, the way life is. Probably goes all the way back to the garden. <laughs> it's human nature. There has to be a balance in the world. It's the yin and the yang. Good people need to go through obstacles in their lives to achieve what they want. So they have some bad things happen to them they have to get through it. You almost have to, it's almost a necessary evil. Something bad has to happen to you in order for you to really value the good things that come. The world's not perfect, so we're gonna be affected by things that the world throws at us, I guess. And then hopefully, you know, when the bad things come, you can take it in stride, knowing that surely the yin and the yang will always balance itself. Just because things are bad today doesn't mean that they'll continue to be that way. It seems real unfair, and um, I would like to think that karma at some point would step in and put a halt to it. I don't think that God has like picked people out to like suffer, et cetera, et cetera, but I do believe that he has a plan. I don't know if uh, God allows things to happen. I think just, things just happen. Things happen in more of a nature kind of way. And maybe God doesn't condone these things. Maybe they happen without God's intervention. God is in control of everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, events happen and things come into people's lives, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. So we determine what, what's good and bad. God is all loving and that's what everyone teaches. So there cannot be a correct answer why he allows suffering. Bad things allow um, people to realize how good God is, I guess. There's a blueprint to life called the Holy Bible. And when you don't follow the blueprint of life, which is the word of God, things bound to go wrong. You know, look at Job, trials of Job. Uh, God allowed uh, his protection to be lifted, and uh, then he was subjected. No matter what we go through, a head injury, a divorce, a, a flunking out of college, anything, no matter what we go through, it makes it all relative to what Christ went through on the cross. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Have you figured all of that out? This morning we conclude our four-part series looking at Acts chapter 7. This morning we're going to look at the stoning of Stephen, but I'm not going to camp there for long. In fact, I'll come back to the stoning of Stephen towards the end of the message Yuba City, California, a high school bus packed with members of the school choir plunges over a bridge, lands on its roof, killing 28 students. Why the choir? Why not the football team? Why Yuba City? Why not Kansas City? Why that school? Union County, South Carolina, a single mother of two dating a man who doesn't want kids, strapped a little toddlers into the back seat of the car, allowed the car to roll into a lake, killing the boys. Why those two boys? Vera Beach, Florida, a 16-year-old young man, a former student of Masters Academy, was fatally struck while riding his bicycle by a drunk driver. Why him? Why Vera Beach? And we can go on and on. The Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11. Beheading of Christians on beaches. Tsunamis that race across oceans and drown hundreds of thousands of people. A parent's divorce. A shooting. Bankruptcy. Cancer. Why me? Do those lives not count for anything? Are those lives meaningless? On occasions, I ask my students, the older ones, to write down their top questions for God. What 
what would you ask God? If God was right here in front of you and God says, ask me anything you want, what would you ask him? I've done this a few times now, and the two questions that always come up, how do I know that I'm saved? And the other one is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And it comes in different forms. Why did my puppy die? Why did daddy leave us? Why did my grandma suffer? How do we handle these issues? I want to show you a visual of a book by Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey wrote this book in the 1970s. He revised it in the 90s. If you're interested in the subject, I would recommend that you read it. Where is God when it hurts? Uh, Yancey is a phenomenal writer. He was uh, editor of Christianity Today for a number of years. Uh, other books of his that I've read, uh, What's Amazing About Grace, The Jesus I Never Knew, phenomenal books. But I've been reading this book just in the past couple of weeks, um, preparing for this message. How do we handle the issue of suffering and pain? How do we process the existence of a loving God in a world that's raked with evil? How do we counsel somebody or advise them who is suffering? How do we attempt to make sense of it? I want to suggest to you four ways that we might approach the subject. And we might focus on one or all four. Well, one of them is that we can attempt to be a comforter. We can comfort and counsel Yancey has an interesting uh, look at how people counsel and comfort those in suffering. And, and, and he says, and he's quite right, a lot of the times we just mess it up because it's hard. Job suffered, and I'll come to him, uh, back to him later on. But Job's three, three comforters, his three friends, weren't all that helpful. His, his wife wasn't all that helpful. In the midst of Job's suffering, his wife says, curse God and die. <laughs> That's pretty rough coming from a wife. There was a lady that I was walking through the valley of death with. I was there when she was diagnosed with cancer, well, not in the doctor's room, but with her. And, 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 and we shared together and we prayed together. And I visited with her and her husband and her son, um, and then over the next couple of years, I just watched her body just, just, just waste away. And we prayed for her so many times. And about three or four days before she passed away, I was, I was sitting at her bedside. Um, she was in a semi-comatose state and hadn't, hadn't said much for days. And so I took out my Bible and I read her favorite Bible story. And to be honest, I forget what it was. And I finished reading the story, and I said, that's, and I referenced the story, and she said, I know. I thought that was pretty cool that she said that. And, and, and so then I just started reading Psalm 1, and I just started reading the Psalms, and I read Psalm 1 and 2, and I got to about 5 or 6, and, and she raised her hand, and she said, please stop. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I was, if I was doing much good. She passed away a couple of days later, and we celebrated her life. Some might approach the subject from a philosophical point of view. We try and rationalize it. We try and figure it out. We understand it, try and make sense of it. We can categorize the causes of evil and suffering into two categories. Either there's natural evil or moral evil. Natural evil comes from natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, disease, Moral evil comes through the depravity of man and man's will. Various worldviews have opinions on this. Islam says suffering is Allah's will. Allah wills it. When there are significant acts of terrorism, very few Muslims will speak out against them because they're afraid. If Allah willed it, how dare they speak out against it? The New Age movement says Suffering is an illusion. Uh, one gentleman told me that suffering is an illusion, so I just slapped him across the face. And he fell down, and when he got up, I said, is that an illusion? 
No, I didn't really do that. <laughs> but that's what they think. Suffering is an illusion. It's not real. Secular humanists tell us that there is no ultimate purpose to life, therefore suffering is just bad luck. The best secular humanist can tell us about suffering is that it's bad luck. The best that the New Age movement can tell us about suffering is that it's just an illusion. Or, as you heard one person say, well, it's just karmic debt. Christianity recognizes that this world, with all of its mess, is part of his story. It's part of his story. We are part of his story. I'll come to that thought, back to it later. There's opposing views on evil and suffering and where it comes from. Bart Eadman, the chairman of the religion department at UNC Chapel Hill, one of the preeminent public universities in this country. Now, the irony is that the head of the religion department is an atheist. Seriously. Bart Eadman claims that he used to be a Christian he rationalized evil and suffering one day, and he couldn't reconcile evil and suffering and a loving God, and so he became an atheist. His kind of reasoning goes like this. I'm going to pull up a graphic here on the screen. If God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. If God is all-good, he would destroy evil. Since evil has not been destroyed, there is no all-powerful, all-good God. C.S. Lewis actually approached the subject from the reverse. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And C.S. Lewis grappled with the existence of evil. And he one day rationalized, well, how can I understand evil if there is no opposing good? And if there is a good, where does the good come from? C.S. Lewis said this, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? The only way that we can properly define anything is if we have a standard by which we define it. How do we know a minute if we don't understand time? How do we understand an inch if we don't understand length? How do we know crooked unless we know straight? How do we know darkness unless we know light? How do we know love and joy unless we also know pain and suffering? If there's a standard of good, where did it come from? The reason why we believe that some suffering is unjust is because we have an idea of what unjust is and what unjust looks like. And if there is such a thing as unjust, where did that knowledge come from? C.S. Lewis concluded that God is good and that evil is a departure from good. Another question, if God is good and if God is love, how can a God of love have all of the suffering in the world? Ravi Zacharias has some interesting thoughts on this. He says that you can never have love without also having the freedom to love. And if we have the freedom to love, then we're going to have the freedom to not love, to not hate. Love cannot truly be love if we are compelled to love. Freedom, Zacharias says, is indispensable to love. He says God will not violate our free will because in so doing, he will violate that very thing that he is calling us to do, which is to love. And if we tell God, Lord, stop the trigger, stop the drunk driver, stop the stoning of Stephen, will we not then ask God to stop everything? Stop me from biting my tongue while I'm eating? Stop me from hearing that sarcastic comment from the coworker? Stop the coworker from making the comment? But that's not humanity. That's not freedom. You might think that asking God to stop these things that hurt us will help, but in actuality, we're actually asking God to stop us from the freedom 
to love him. Without suffering, there would be no heroes. Without suffering, there's no need for moral reformers. Without suffering, there's no reason for us to be kind to anyone. Dr. Paul Brand, if you look up his name, he was a pioneer in treating leprosy. Dr. Paul Brand says, pain is a gift from God. People with leprosy would pray to have pain on the end of their fingers. But because leprosy is killing their nerves, they will literally pick up. In fact, Dr. Paul Brand, early in his research, was sitting with a leprous person, and this leprous person picked a potato that was um, baking in a fire, picked it up with his hands. He didn't feel pain. Dr. Brand says, pain is a gift from God. C.S. Lewis calls pain God's megaphone. (laughs) We might approach this idea of suffering from a theological perspective, and this just (laughs) probably adds more questions than it solves. There are those that are deists that says that God started the world and then he left, kind of wound it up, created it, and then he split. God isn't involved in the world. God God is detached. We're not deists. We believe that God is here with us. We sometimes act like deists, but we're not. There's a theology that says that God has a permissive will, that God allows suffering, but he does not ordain it. The flip side of that says God is sovereign. He does ordain suffering and pain so that we might see his glory. Then we ask the question, well, what about free will? Does free will even exist? Do you see how difficult this is to grapple with? I think the best way to understand pain and suffering is to go to God's word. Let's read his story. What does his story tell us? And so I'm going to suggest to you six characters in Jesus' story that talk to us about pain and suffering. First of all is Job. Job was an upright man. He loved the Lord. He was successful. And, and, and it seems as if Job is kind of victim to this cosmic conversation going on between God and the devil. And the devil says to God, Job is just a machine. You push his button like Pavlov's dog is going to salivate. He's going to love you. He's going to say this. He's going to say whatever you want. Because you have hedged Job in with all of this stuff. And God says, no, he's not. I'm paraphrasing, yeah? God, Job loves me freely. So the devil says, if you take away his health and his wealth and his family, he will curse you. So God gives the devil permission. And Job works, I mean, the devil works Job over. He loses his livelihood, his children, his health. Job says this in chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's pretty rough to say that in the midst of pain and suffering. And then Job has these three friends that come and visit him. And the majority of the book is this dialogue between Job and his three friends. And Job and God and Job and his wife. And in the midst of all of this dialogue and Job in his suffering... He makes a startling statement, Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. It would be easy to sit at somebody's bedside suffering and quote this verse. It would be far more powerful if the person suffering in the bed quoted this verse. What about Joseph? He was a young man who loved the Lord. He got betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, languishes in prison for years and years. Eventually, he's reunited with his brothers, and in their old age, their father Jacob is dead, and the brothers think that Joseph might take revenge on them. But Joseph makes this statement Genesis 50, verse 20, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. The prophet Habakkuk, 
ministered to Judah, 600 BC. He was outraged with the violence and injustice in society, the sin, the wickedness, the destruction, the wickedness in courts. Kind of sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Habakkuk was frustrated that the people were ignoring God's law. He knew the pagan armies were coming and that Judah's days were numbered. Habakkuk makes this statement, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What a wonderful testimony. The prophet Jeremiah also ministered to Judah around 600 BC. There are some Bible scholars who say that if there was ever a prophet who was close to suicide, it was Jeremiah. One scholar actually wrote a book about Jeremiah and he entitled it The Weeping Prophet. Jeremiah was bullied and battered and persecuted and ignored in his faithful service to the Lord. And he writes a, a line that we quote, one of our favorite lines, when we think about our future and God's plans for us. But you need to read this within the context of Jeremiah's suffering for the ministry that God had called him to and the abuse that he felt from the people of Judah in the midst of his ministry. Jeremiah says this, chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Do you believe that? When you get that cancer report? Jesus. How can we ever discuss suffering without talking about Jesus? We're entering into the Passion Week in a few days and we're going to reflect on the suffering of Jesus, I'd encourage you to read the gospel accounts of Jesus' suffering on the cross. And I'm not going to go over those, but I do want to read to you from the prophet Isaiah about 800 years before Jesus suffered. He prophesied the suffering of Jesus. And this is probably the best, most graphic description of the suffering of Jesus. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, he was oppressed and he was afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Did Jesus suffer? Does Jesus understand suffering? But wasn't he God in the flesh? Couldn't he have stopped that? Couldn't he have called a thousand angels, 10,000 angels, to stop the beating and the whipping and the nailing to the cross? How do you think Jesus felt when he was hanging on the cross? When he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Lamech Sabachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Can you feel his emotion? The word forsaken in the Greek, sabachthani, means to desert, to abandon. Our Savior felt abandoned on the cross. If we 
translate what Jesus said on the cross into toddler talk. Daddy, daddy, why have you left us? You think Jesus understands suffering? You think he understands rejection and betrayal, being despised and abandoned and pain? Did Jesus experience the, the, the brutality of human indifference? Hebrews 4.15, I hope this encourages you. <laughs> For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands. Ravi Zacharias says this, it is the woman who has been raped and not the rapist who understands what rape is. It is the one who has been slandered who understands what slander is, not the slanderer. It is only the one who died for our sin who can explain to us what evil is, not the skeptics. The cross points the way to a full explanation. He identifies. He sympathizes. He understands what suffering is. So this brings me back to Stephen and Stephen Stoning. The New Testament church is three, four, five years old. A young man I'm with a few others is elected to run a ministry. A somewhat kind of a mundane ministry, but these young men, they just light it up. And they turn feeding Greek widows into this glorious ministry. The Bible tells us that, 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 that Stephen was outspoken, that he was very sharp, that he loved the Lord, he could, he could defend his faith. And the religious leaders didn't like this. They dragged Stephen before them into a council. They accuse him of blasphemy. But he doesn't back down. He doesn't try and squirm his way out of the charges. Instead, Stephen tells them a story. He tells them about God's story. He tells them about the God who loved them and cared for them and called Abraham and Moses and David, who sent his son, who they had executed, Stephen is this example of a Christian tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. After delivering an impassioned speech, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I'm just getting started, by the way, okay? Verse 54, now when they heard this, these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed, to, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against me. For when he had said this, he fell asleep. God, why couldn't you stop that? This young, promising man, why couldn't you cause the stones to, to miss You've done it before, remember? The woman caught in adultery. You stopped that stoning. Why not Stephen? Does his life not count for anything? The accusations of blasphemy were false. The execution of Stephen was illegal. According to the records, no one was charged. Was this all meaningless? What are some results of the stoning of Stephen? What happened after that? Increased persecution against Christians, that's not a good thing. It would get worse in the decades to come from the Romans. There was a rabbi by the name of Saul who stood by watching. He would go on and persecute the church in vicious ways. Christians scatter from Jerusalem Dare we list the positives? 
as the Christians scatter, wherever they go, they plant churches. Running from Saul's persecution, wherever they go, in Asia Minor, in Italy, they're planting churches. Saul has got a letter of authority to go in and hunt down Christians. It's open season on hunting Christians. And on his road to Damascus, God stops him in his tracks and saves Paul, Saul. And Saul takes on his Roman name of Paul, becomes the greatest missionary in history. And in an ironic twist, when he goes to Asia Mine and he founds Christians that ran from his persecution, he starts being their pastor, being their leader. The stoning of Stephen was one of the most shocking incidents in the New Testament. It demonstrates the hatred the religious leaders had for Christianity. But beyond that, it sets the stage for the spread of the gospel. Suffering at times to us is hard to rationalize and understand, but it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. And I know we, our thoughts are not God's thoughts and our ways are not God's ways. And how we get from two plus two equals four might not be the way that God gets from two plus two equals four. So I want to close this message. And if you'll just hang with me about another six or seven minutes. I want to close this message by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter four. This is from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There's enough in those two verses for a whole sermon. We do not lose heart. We renounce disgraceful ways. We do not do anything underhanded. We refuse to tamper with God's word. And we present ourselves to the conscience of those around us. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now take note of verse 8 and 9. We are afflicted on every side but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Nobody wants to lose heart. Nobody wants to have hope ripped out of their lives and their existence. Nobody wants to lose motivation for living. So does Paul have some secret here when he tells us not to lose heart? Didn't he just list that he's afflicted in every way, that he's perplexed, that he's persecuted, that he's struck down? Isn't that reason to lose heart? How is it possible? Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Second time he's said this in the same passage. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction has been preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Please don't tell anyone in the midst of this suffering that this is light and momentary. Probably not good timing. But this is what Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen is eternal. Paul is speaking within the context of suffering. Though our outer self is wasting away, we do not lose heart. The word wasting away is only used a few times in the New Testament. One of the times it's used is in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, we don't use coats in Florida much. I do. It gets to about 70 degrees, and I look for my coat. 
Uh, but, but let's just imagine that we've got this thick, heavy coat now, it's April, and so we stick it in the back of the closet or in a spare room, and we don't know that there's a little family of moths that's taken up residence in that closet. We come back about eight or nine months later, and we put the coat on us, and it's literally been eaten away, and it just falls away. That's this idea of being wasted away, being destroyed. Paul says, though we are wasting away, body, mind, Finances, family, cancer, though we're wasting away, yet inwardly we've been renewed day by day. How is that? How can we be renewed day by day? Didn't Jesus tell us every day has trouble? Yes, but God also says there are mercies new every morning. Verse 18 says, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How do we look at what we cannot see? It doesn't make sense. Paul is saying, focus on the eternal. Focus on the unseen. Not on the moth, not on the rust, not on the disaster, not on the human depravity. Back to verse 17, for the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. It really is. And I've read it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And up until preparing for this message, this word preparing in verse 17 has never jumped out at me. John uh, Piper, I listened to a message of his last week. John, John Piper talks about preparing. That in some mystical, spiritual way, our suffering is preparing for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh everything else. That's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to understand. But whatever you're going through today, whatever that big issue is, that big question for God, whatever that question that you would go to God and say, why God, why, why, why me, why my family, why my son, why my daughter, why my spouse, whatever that is, God is telling us, whatever he is walking with you through this world, it is achieving for you something that will far outweigh what you're going through. In a sense, your suffering works for you. The skeptic says, if God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. If God is all good, he would destroy evil. Since evil has not been destroyed, there is no all-powerful, all-good God. We have a response to that. If God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. If God is all-good, he would destroy evil. Evil has not yet been destroyed. One day, our all-powerful God, our all-good God, will destroy evil. You are part of God's story. Everything that's going on is part of God's story. Your pain, your suffering, your issues is part of his story. Last things. Acts chapter 7 verse 56. Stephen saying, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man stand in at the right hand of God. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Standing? Doesn't the Bible tell us in all the passages in the New Testament that the Savior has gone to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father? Only one passage in Scripture in the New Testament is Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And this is it. Have you ever been in like a crowd and something happens and, and you stand to your feet? Or you're in a ball game and there's a great play and you stand to your feet? 
or you see it and there's a big calamity and you stand up. Stephen is dragged out of the council room. And there's people that hate him, that hated Jesus, and they're taking rocks and they're throwing them at Stephen. Stephen. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is standing. Standing. Identifying with suffering, with feeling the pain of Stephen. Maybe he stands when you cry. Maybe he stands up when you say, Lord, why me? I want to encourage you to prayerfully, prayerfully get to that point in your walk with God when you will say to God like Job said to God, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. And that doesn't make sense to a human mind, but it makes sense spiritually. What are you suffering with this morning? The Lord might not take it away, <laughs> but what he does want to do, he wants to wrap you in his arms and he wants to love you and he wants you to know that he knows your suffering. Let's pray. just allow the Lord to minister to you you're in a quiet moment in a few days we will start Passion Week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Easter Friday. Easter Sunday. Many times in our Christian walk, we, we want to go from the celebration of Palm Sunday and jump right over land in Resurrection Sunday. But that's not possible. We have to go through the cross. Jesus had to go through the cross. In our response time this morning, we're going to do things a little differently. I'm going to invite you to stay seated. Pastor Randy is going to Sing a word from the Lord over us. And then he'll close out the service as the Lord leads him. You just prayerfully listen to what the Lord is saying to you this morning. Heart and flesh. 
flesh may fail the earth below give way and with my eyes with my eyes i see the lord lifted high upon that day behold the lamb that was slain and i'll know every tear was worth it
one more time. differently. I just sense the spirit is still moving and still working. So in reverence to, to what the Lord's doing in this place, let's kind of leave uh, a little more silently. But if the Lord is working on you or delivering you from something or dealing with you on something, just stay put and maybe gather around with people and pray together. Maybe cement it. Just put it in concrete what the Lord's done in this place today. Amen. But otherwise, God bless you. Let's leave quietly. Thank you. God bless. Have a great week.